Hey, Life Canton. Uh, Roger here, Director of Student Young Adult Ministries. So glad that you're listening to us today. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. If you're a brand new listener, welcome. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, all that so you can get more of the podcasts that we put out. Uh, but either way, if you want to participate in what God is doing in this community, and he is up to quite a bit. Uh, there's a lot of ways to do that, but one way is to give financially, and you can do that on our give page, lifechurchcan.org forward slash give. Uh, you can give a recurring gift, uh, but we always want to offer the opportunity to be a part of what God's up to. Uh, but we are in our Second Timothy series still for the summer. Uh, it's been an awesome series just seeing uh, this, uh, this relationship and this interaction between Paul and Timothy what it teaches us about the church. Uh, we got another message from Pastor Jared this week, and he's going to talk all about words. Um, I think he's going to have some, some pretty encouraging and powerful stuff to say. So give that a listen. We'll catch up with you in a minute. Amen. You have a seat. Welcome. It's great to worship with you. My name is Jared. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome to Life Canton. If you are newer here or been checking us out for a little while, please make sure uh, to fill out that Connect card that is near you, or if you want to do that online, you can do that as well and turn it in in the Welcome Center so that we can help you take a ne- next step. And we want to hear a little bit about you. We want to hear your story. We want to be part of your story as well. So uh, make sure to do that at any time throughout our gathering. Uh, we have been in a series called Second Timothy where we have been looking at a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to Timothy. It's a second letter, and Paul and Timothy are in this discipling relationship. Timothy is leading a church in an area around Ephesus. It's this really uh, populated area, a really intellectual area. And so Paul is kind of coaching him, as it were, from a distance while he's in prison. And so this, this is the letter that we get to look into and find some encouragement for ourselves as well. We're going to dive into that in just a second. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 2 in just a moment if you want to follow along as well. But if you are newer uh, or newer to me, you haven't met me yet, one thing you might not know about me is that I can get really nerdy about words and vocabulary. I don't know why. It's just my thing, uh, and it's, it's weird. I, I really enjoyed vocab quizzes and tests in high school um, for some reason, and actually when we started having kids, when our kids were at a very young age, I would specifically intentionally use big words with them that they were never going to understand at the age of two or three, and I figured, you know what, let's just raise the bar and just get them up there now. Wow. Okay. I was not expecting applause. I'm done. We'll see you guys. That's great. I didn't even have to preach. Here we go. But here's the thing. Uh, just a couple months ago, my daughter came home from school, and she said, Daddy, somebody at recess called me stupid today. And I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm, that probably hurt. I'm really sorry for that. I said, you know what? What you should do next time, if it happens again, here's what you do. Here's what you say to them. I understand that your prefrontal cortex hasn't been fully developed yet, and so this name-calling is just indicative of your unchecked insecurities. <laughs> We're going to be here all day if you guys keep going. This is, this is going to be too long. And my, so my nine-year-old uh, looked at me with confusion in her eyes, and I just said, hurt people hurt people, all right? We'll just, we'll just leave it at that. I warned you, I'm nerdy, okay? Here's the thing. Words are great, but they can also bog people down. They can confuse people. They can even bore people. Like I can talk about premillennial dispensationalism and half this side of the room just fell asleep. It's a lot. It can be boring. It can be confusing. And here's the thing. Politicians are really good with words as well. They can twist 
words. We had a president, uh, I think in the 90s, that said something like, well, that depends on what the definition of the word is, is. I'm sorry? But religious folk are good at this too. Pastors, theologians, scholars, we are always concerned about words and getting words just right. And words are important. There's Greek and there's Hebrew and there's Aramaic and there's all these things to do with words. But there's a question. When are words just too much and when is it important? How, how do we know the difference? And this is actually an argument in the first century. In the first century church, Paul is writing to Timothy and there's an issue concerning words. Let me show you what I'm talking about. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 2, starting in verse 14. It says, remind everybody, Timothy, remind everyone about these things and command them in God's presence to stop fighting over words. Stop fighting over words. What's he talking about here? Well, just a reminder, this area that Paul is, uh, well, or sorry, that Timothy is in is very influenced by the Greeks. And they are highly intellectual. They're all about knowledge and education. And there's lots of different ideologies, philosophies, theologies that are all sort of competing for one another. They would talk about these things regularly. And there was specifically a belief system called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Uh, They would maybe pronounce it gnosis, where we get the word knowledge, to know something. They were all about Knowledge, and there's a whole lot we could say about Gnosticism, but the thing that's important to remember about it specifically is this. It basically presented this idea that you are not a whole person, that there are separate parts to who you are as a human. You have the body, the flesh, and that was considered wicked and evil, wrong, bad, gross, whatever adjective you want to use. But there was also the spirit or the soul. They might have had different names for that. And they were spiritual people, whether they believed in Jesus or not. They were spiritual people, so they believed in a soul or a spirit. The soul and the spirit, that's the good part of who you are, separate from the body. Those two entities are separate. Body and flesh are bad and evil and wicked. Spirit and soul is good. And they might even believe that there was sort of an evidence or pieces of God or the divine in your spirit. Now, here's what they believed. If your body and flesh is bad, well, how do you make it so it's not bad? Well, your mind is part of your body. Tell you what, if you can grow in your knowledge and your education, what it would do is sort of activate the God or the good within your spirit and your soul, and that would help you, in a way, achieve salvation. Really confusing, but this is, this is kind of their understanding. Well, if that's the case, then that's a big deal for the early church. These are the words that were being discussed. The arguments that they had were over these ideas about Gnosticism. Gnosticism was incredibly popular at the time. Why is that such a big deal? Because in the mission and the ministry and the message of Jesus, Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those things weren't separated, but extremely together. You're a whole person that needs love and needs to give love. The whole thing, your whole self, my whole self, needs redemption. Not just bits and pieces of it. The whole self of who I am needs redemption. And our whole selves can belong to God, not just bits and pieces. We're not fragmented. And so there's conflict. 
because these competing ideologies and theologies even started to infiltrate the church and made things very, very confusing. Well, if that's the case, if Gnosticism is the new truth that we should all belong to, if body and soul are separate entities, then, then we really don't need a physical death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't really need that, which actually flies in the face of what John talked about last week. Just a couple verses ahead of time, it says, always remember that Jesus Christ, the descendant of King David, was raised from the dead. Why always? Because people are forgetting it in light of this new teaching called Gnosticism that everybody is now confused about. Why? Well, because if we don't need a resurrection, if it's not all that important, if the bodily resurrection of Jesus doesn't really matter, well, then we just need more knowledge. We should just get more knowledge. That's, that's what's going to be our salvation. We should just get smarter. We should just read more. We should just have more education. Well, that's nice, except if you're a person on the margins in this context. If you're poor, if you're a woman, if you're a slave, if you're a Jew recently converted to Christianity, it doesn't look too good for you because you don't have access to education, you don't have access to these spheres that are extremely intellectual. It makes it really hard. And not only that, but more knowledge doesn't address the problem of evil, of excessive violence and abuse. It doesn't address the problem of shootings. Just get smarter. It doesn't fix it. There's got to be something that goes beyond just our knowledge. Remind everybody to stop fighting over words. What kind of words were we talking about? Different words like Gnosticism, ideologies, the importance of the resurrection. And then he goes on to say this in verse 14, the second part. He says, such arguments are useless and they can ruin those who hear them. You start bringing these new ideas into the church, guess what? Those people on the margins that we talked about, they're going to feel alienated and it's going to ruin them. Why? Because these different ideas that are contradictory to the mission and ministry and message of Jesus are either distorted or destructive or depressing and leave us feeling disconnected. It ruins people. I'm going to give you an example of what he's talking about with arguments. He is specifically speaking about this bodily resurrection of Jesus. This was a hot topic in the first century church. This was a, a very big concern in terms of how do we understand this? Why is it important? And I struggled with trying to figure out how to talk about this particular argument because the further and further you uh, dive into the study around Gnosticism and how it conflicts with resurrection, it just gets really wordy. <laughs> it gets to be really complicated and confusing and just a lot more information, and I don't want to bog you down with more words, and we don't have enough time for it. So what I wanted to do then is instead talk about a greater idea, this idea uh, that comes from a theologian named A.W. Tozer. He says this, what we think about God is the most important thing about us. What you and I think about when we think about God, when we imagine God, that's really important about us. Because what we think about God has implications for how we behave, for the kinds of people that we become, for who we interact with, for how we act or don't act, for that matter. 
What you think about God is the most important thing about you. It's the most important thing about me because of it, its impact on every part of who you are. And that includes how we think about the resurrection. I'll give you one example, sort of a, a case study, if you will. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. So if we were to play that out in sort of a case study, let's take part of John's message from last week. In case uh, you didn't hear it, John took us through this U diagram that was up here on the screen, and he talked about the progression going from Friday, the death of Jesus, uh, the crucifixion, into, into Saturday, the burial, and then ultimately into Sunday, the resurrection. And he talked about Sunday, we need to have a Sunday mindset, or we need to have a restoration perspective. It's this idea that God is going to restore all things, and he has invited us into that restoration project. Hence our vision, the second half of our vision, to bear the torch of Christ's justice and love. That's in the here and now. We are part of that restorative work. We have been invited into that work in the here and now. It's not just some future off in the distant place that's going to happen that we don't have any part of. No, we, we participate in that now and into eternity. That's a big deal. That is a way of thinking about God. Did you know that there is an opposing ideology or theology uh, that is actually quite the opposite of that and is actually extremely popular in the American church? Some of you maybe even have grown up with it. It's this idea that we're just all waiting someday to go off into the clouds and to play our harps up into the clouds and go up into heaven off in the distance. And then when Jesus comes back, he's going to take us up and we're all going to go up there, uh, somewhere up there. And then what's going to happen is this place, this, this earth, is just going to blow up and burn up. So what that means is if that's the case, if I'm going up here and I'm leaving this place and this place is going to burn up, then it doesn't really matter what I do or don't do with the environment. It doesn't matter how I treat the environment. Here's the thing. Here's what I've learned in close to 20 years in working in the church. The moment I say the words, how we treat the environment, triggers somebody emotionally because of its political connotations. And so if I talk about caring for the environment or how we treat the environment in church, what I have received is comments that you're a godless, progressive, tree-hugger, liberal. That's not hypothetical. Those are actually emails that I've received. If I say the words, how we treat the environment. That's based on, that emotional reaction is based on a belief system that was created over words and arguments on an understanding of Scripture. That is not the view that God gives us. Just a side note, if I say creation care, that's somehow more palatable somehow more acceptable because I use the word creation. It's a biblical word. So now all of a sudden it's not political, but it's biblical. We get hung up over words, don't we? And it messes us up. What we think about God is the most important thing about us. How we talk about God and its implications on our world and on our relationships is important. And here's the thing. If God isn't a God of restoration, then we're in a lot of trouble. And, and, and it leaves us with other questions. John talked about this last week. He said, God is a God of restoring all creation. And guess what that word all means? All. It's not complicated. It means all. He restores all 
creation. But if our God is not a God who restores all creation, then what was Jesus doing healing broken pieces of creation? Why was he wasting his time on a bunch of broken people, on a paralytic, on a woman who's bleeding? Why waste your time? Why not just uh, scrap it? We'll start over fresh. If our God isn't a God of restoration. Let's make it a little bit more personal. If our God isn't a God who restores all of broken creation, what is he wasting his time with you for? See how quickly arguments ruin people. And what we think about God is the most important thing about us. Stop fighting over words, Paul says. All these arguments are leading to destruction, to distortion, to depression. What do we do instead? Verse 15. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. Be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth. I want to be very quick and, 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 and clear on this first sentence here. Work hard so you can present yourself to God and receive his approval. That could be misconstrued if we're not careful. Some of you have grown up maybe just with a little bit of church or a little bit of scripture and you've always heard the phrase, it's not by your own doing or not by your works that you can be saved. It's only by grace in Christ through faith that you can be saved. And that is true. That is not what Paul is talking about here. This sentence is not about salvation, but it is about Timothy's responsibility. Work hard. Work hard at what you're doing. That has nothing to do with your salvation. What you're working hard at is learning how to correctly explain the word of truth. Why do you need to work hard at this? Because there are other truths out there that are competing for the truth that you stand for, Timothy. So you need to be diligent. You got to work hard at making sure you understand what it says and how to explain the word of truth. We would say scripture. Now here's the thing. Timothy doesn't have the New Testament to explain. He doesn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians. He doesn't have all of that. It is happening. It is being written. So all Timothy has to go on is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, which doesn't explicitly name Jesus yet. It leads us to there. It leads us to Jesus. And if we're reading it through the proper lenses, it leads us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But it takes some work to understand that. Even the first followers of Jesus, just a few days after the resurrection, the disciples were extremely confused. Jesus is actually with them, and they don't know it's Jesus. And so it says, Jesus takes them through the scriptures and opens their minds to understand who he is because they didn't get the death or the resurrection. That the Messiah would have to suffer and die. They didn't understand it. So now, Timothy, in this world, in this context, is having to work hard at explaining the truth, especially with these competing theologies, also with the confusion of what the death or resurrection of Jesus actually looks like. Work hard at it, Paul says. And then he also says this in verse 16, avoid worthless, foolish talk that only leads to more godless behavior. This kind of talk spreads like cancer. Another translation here is gangrene, uh, an infection, sickness. 
Avoid worthless, foolish talk. Again, the worthless, foolish talk that he's referring to isn't just like small talk or talking about the roads or the weather or sports. That's not what he's referring to here. He's actually talking about competing theologies and ideologies, about the resurrection, about Gnosticism. Paul says avoid it. He doesn't say correct it, challenge it, maybe give a counter argument. No, no, no. He says avoid it. Avoid it. Because it's like cancer. That's a more more visceral picture here. One pastor talks about the the combination of these verses uh, in this way. He says, when I read verse 15, I think about explaining the truth, and I get this picture of being in sort of like a classroom setting and having a real civil debate and discussion because that's probably what it was like in, in Ephesus, in the area near Ephesus. They had a place called the Agora. It was a very intentional place where you would go and you would discuss the, the competing theologies or ideologies of the day. But then when you mix that with the next verse, avoid worthless, foolish talk because it's like cancer, that's a different image. That, that's not a classroom civil debate discussion. No, he's like, the, the, the image I get more so is one of like a tour guide leading a bunch of foreigners through a very thick, entangled forest, an overgrown forest with machete cutting your way through to try to see through to the other side. What he's saying is, Timothy, don't engage in those conversations. They're worthless. They're foolish. Explain the truth, but don't engage in the other competing ideologies. Don't get stuck. And this pastor says, Go, keep going through with your machete. You're not going to stop when you're in an overgrown forest or jungle and evaluate every little branch and leaf and say, oh, this one's cool or this one's interesting. No, get through because the longer you stay in there, you're going to be entangled and it's going to take you over like an infection that spreads through your whole body. Get out of it. Avoid it. And then he goes on to say, this has already happened. It's already happening. Specifically in verse 17, he says, as in the case of Hymenaeus and Philetus, they have left the path of truth, claiming that the resurrection of the dead has already occurred. That's the primary argument. And in this way, they have turned some people away from the faith. This is the biggest argument. The resurrection from the dead has already occurred. Now, there's a whole lot to get into uh, specifically with this piece. It gets really heady, it gets really complicated. But again, remember, what we think about God is the most important thing about us and what they believed with Gnosticism. So, so now what was happening in the first century is Gnosticism, this belief that we talked about earlier, was creeping into the church. It's creeping into the church. And so it was starting to distort and destroy and even depress, if you will, the message of Jesus and the message of the resurrection and what the resurrection meant for people. And what was happening is they were saying, you know what, the, the resurrection from the dead has already occurred. So if Jesus uh, is a human, yeah, we understand he's God and, and human at the same time, but it's too hard for us to understand that, so we're just going to separate it out. He, he has God-like qualities, but he's still a human. Well, if he's a human, then he himself is fragmented. He has a body that is wicked, but he also has a spirit that is good. So when they say Jesus resurrected from the dead, 
it's not really a bodily resurrection. It was just a spiritual resurrection. If you're newer to the church, you're like, okay, big deal. What does that mean? Well, that has implications for how we understand God and God's purposes and God's mission with all of us. And so what they said was, if it's just a spiritual resurrection of Jesus, it didn't really physically happen, then you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, well, that's pretty much it. Now that you know about Jesus, you sort of experienced a spiritual enlightenment, and now you have this new knowledge, and so that's it. You, you now have a spiritual resurrection. You too have been spiritually resurrected. Way to go. That's it. That's the end of it. And that was it. How distorted and destructive and depressing would that message be, especially for people on the margins? Especially for a poor widow, orphan, a woman, a slave, a recently converted Jew who was now completely isolated from their community that they used to know, but now in this new community where they're experiencing intense persecution and violence and evil, for them to be told, hey, you've already arrived. And then to look out and experience nothing but hardship and suffering and abuse and violence. To be told that this is all there is, how hopeless of a message is that? How destructive is a message like that? This is ruining the church. Hymenaeus and Philetus have already begun to share this truth with the church and it has caused people to leave, to become disconnected. Because if this is all there is, if I don't understand God as a God who restores all creation, if there's not hope and joy and beauty and love and goodness on the other side of this, what am I even doing here? And so people are becoming disconnected from the faith. Maybe you have come in today feeling somewhat fragmented, disconnected. Maybe you have grown up in churches where messages and ideas about God have felt distorted or destructive, where God's just out to get you. Or maybe you heard messages that led to just greater anxiety and depression and shame. You're just never going to be good enough. And so it's caused you to become more and more disconnected. And maybe you're here today, you're like, I'm going to give it one last shot. I'm so grateful that you're in this place because there is a way forward. And Paul explains to Timothy, there is a way forward. Check out verse 19. But God's truth stands firm like a foundation stone with this inscription. The Lord knows those who are his. And all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. Why is that a hopeful message? Let me explain. This idea of a foundation stone with this inscription is this picture that Paul is giving to Timothy 
He understands the culture. And a lot of times in these highly populated areas, there are statues all over the city and they are standing up on a, a stone, a foundation stone. And oftentimes they would have an inscription on the stone with some sort of poetry or maybe a, a title of whoever this statue represented. Oftentimes it was their different Greek gods, Roman gods, goddesses, different figures that were important in their world. And in a sense, all of these statues that surrounded the city and the area sort of were the defining pieces of their culture. This is how they defined their culture. Also, not just the statues, but the inscriptions on the statues as well. These phrases they were very well aware of. It defined their culture. What Paul is saying here is, I'm going to give you a new way. I'm going to call you to redefine culture. You're going to redefine culture, and you're going to do it with this way, with these ideas about who God is. This is what he says. He quotes two Old Testament scriptures. The Lord knows those who are his. This comes from the book of Numbers. It's the story of God's people who have become extremely fragmented, disconnected. One of the oppositions to the people of God, to Moses, actually starts using a bunch of words, twisting words and ideas about God, causing separation in the community of faith. And instead of Moses responding with smarter, better, more intellectual words, all he says is this, the Lord knows those who are his. Why is that powerful? Because he's not counteracting an argument with just more words, with more education. No, he's talking about God is a God of family. God is a God of relationship, of connection. God knows who belongs to him. He knows who are his. That's all that matters. Do you belong to him? That's all that matters. And the second verse, all who belong to the Lord must turn away from evil. This is an Old Testament verse from the book of Isaiah. It's a prophetic message from God to his people saying, I am liberating you out of captivity. I'm taking you out of exile. You belong to me. Turn away from your former world. Step into a new identity. These verses are all about belonging, connection. God is a God of relationship. You can get more knowledge, you can get smarter, but if it doesn't cut to the core of your heart, of your identity, then it's just temporary. If you belong to him, there is hope on the other side of this. There is hope for us. He says, knowledge is not your God. Your mind is not your God. The risen King Jesus is your God. And if you are in Christ, you too will raise someday. God is not concerned just about the spiritual, but also the physical, the mental, the emotional. God wants your whole self to belong to him because your whole self can be redeemed in him. So what is our way forward? What is our action step? Life Canton. Here's what I want to call you into. I want us to redefine our culture. Redefine the culture around us. Doing two things. One is simply just a repeat of verse 16. Avoid worthless, foolish talk. 
that only leads to more godless behavior. What do I mean by that? I'm not talking about small talk. I'm not talking about, talking about sports or the weather or the roads or anything like that. I'm saying avoid worthless, foolish ideas about God that only lead to distortion, destruction, depression, and ultimately disconnection. Don't get caught up in those arguments. Church, let's make it really, really simple for people to encounter Jesus. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Let's make it really simple. Let's not make it complicated. I'm not saying it's easy to be a follower of Jesus. Don't get those words confused. Simple and easy, not the same thing. Let's make it simple for people to understand the love and the grace and the mercy of God. But as we step into that, doesn't mean it's easy. It's not easy to love one another, especially to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. It's not easy. But let's make it simple for people to experience belonging and to encounter Jesus. We still struggle with this. In fact, just uh, last night, my wife and I were out. We went to downtown Plymouth. They had this whole art in the park thing. And we're walking around, and we hear music, and uh, we get closer, and I can hear it's this saxophone is playing incredible jazz music. I love jazz saxophone, jazz piano. And this guy is in, uh, in the park area, and he's playing just beautiful jazz on his saxophone. We're just listening, just taking it all in, just enjoying it. Like, oh, this is beautiful. This is awesome. And I look over, and he plays this, like, really crazy high note, and my wife gets chills, and she's like, look at my arms. I got goosebumps. The hair is standing, and it's almost like just, just this really internal, almost spiritual experience. It's not spiritual. It is in some ways. It's a much longer argument. But anyway, it's this beautiful moment as we're listening to this amazing music. I'm like, okay, so there's so many other things we got to see. Let's, let's go and see some of the other things. So we turn around, and immediately we hear this shouting. We hear this voice. And this man is up on this box, and he is shouting at everybody on a loudspeaker. And I hear words like God and the Bible, and I see this large poster board filled with all different kinds of sins. And he's saying, he's pointing to his board, and he's saying, this is all the reasons. These are all the reasons why you all are going to hell. So turn to God. And I immediately look at my wife, and she's like, now I'm nauseous. Now I'm nauseous. I don't feel so good. And what made it even worse is I looked around, and there were five, six, seven-year-old kids handing out miniature versions of this poster to all of us. Such arguments ruin those who hear them. How is it possible that in one moment we can be listening to somebody playing jazz music on a saxophone and we feel something. We feel beauty and joy listening to music and in another moment hear somebody talking about God, talking about Bible, talking about sin, talking about all these Christian things and then we feel nauseous. Some people would say, well, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. I mean, he's just being bold. He's being an advocate for the gospel. Yep, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive. People aren't supposed to be offensive. He's shouting ideas about God that are leading to, guess what, more distortion, destruction, and depression. 
Nobody's walking by and standing and being like, you know what, you're right. You're right. Please tell me more about this God. Nobody stopped by. People just wanted to walk on by. What if we avoid worthless ideas about God that lead to other people's destruction? What if we were more like the saxophonist? What if we were the people that were making beauty and joy in the park and not being the one on the street corner shouting destructive messages to people? We are called into relationship. Shouting at people doesn't lead to anything that is holistic or beautiful or hope-filled. Avoid the ideas about God that lead to destruction. Secondly, let's create belonging. Create belonging. Invite somebody, meet somebody. Meet someone, invite someone. We talk about this all the time. You belong, it's on our wall. We say, you belong, we want you to experience belonging. Some of you have been coming back because you're like, no, I, re- I really do. I, I experience belonging. Some of you decided, you know what, this is my home church. I want to become a partner. And I feel belonging here as well. And that is great. We want you to feel belonging. But now, if you've been coming here a while, whether you're a partner or just a regular attender, now it's your turn to turn around and create belonging. Not a week has gone by in the last several months that I haven't seen a new face, met a new name, a new person. There are new people. Some of you are new today. It is our responsibility to create belonging for you. And I specifically want to call out those of you who are partners. It is your job. It is your responsibility to create belonging for people. It is hard to step into a church and to not know anybody, to not know where to go, to not know if you're going to be judged by the way you look, or maybe they're going to be able to see into me somehow and see all of the sins that I've committed, or they're going to see all of the issues that I have. It's hard to step into a place like that unless we create belonging. This is how we redefine the culture. Now, It might not sound all that fancy. It might not sound that great. But here's the thing. In the first century, this was huge. There was rampant persecution, violence, abuse, specifically for the church. You know what kept the church going? You know what kept the church growing? Radical hospitality. Meet somebody. Invite somebody into something. Do life with them. You don't need to win over arguments. You don't need to try to convince them of some other thing. Just create belonging. Reflect the God who created belonging for us. Who redeems our whole self. Let's be a community that creates belonging that leads to greater redemption and restoration. Some of you are here today and you resonated. That idea resonated with you of I'm on my last thread. I'm feeling disconnected from the church, from God. I haven't had good experiences, but I'm gonna give it one last shot. If that's you, I wanna invite you into a prayer. You can make it your own. 
into your heart. It's not about you just getting more knowledge, getting better, but meeting a relational God that wants a relationship with you. Would you stand with me, please? And I want to invite you to pray along with me. God, we recognize that our whole selves are broken. And our world tells us that we just have to do better, get smarter, make more money, get stronger, and then somehow we'll arrive. And none of those things will ever bring us completion. None of those things will ever save us. God, for some of us, we're on our last thread and we need hope. We need to know that there is more beyond this. And as Paul says, I am sure of it, that God who began a good work in me We'll complete it on the day of Christ's return. God, we need that promise today. Would you make that real in my heart? Would you help me to trust you? And for those of us who have ideas about God that only lead us to feeling destructive or depressed, we ask your Holy Spirit to transform those pictures of who you are that you would welcome us into your arms like a loving parent. Trust you. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that message. I hope you found something that was encouraging or uplifting or empowering or challenging or whatever. Uh, I think the thing that stood out to me was Pastor Jared's challenge for us to make it easier for people to encounter Jesus. I think that's something our community is actually learning to do really well. It's something we will grow in. So I'm excited to see what happens as we do that. But either way, if there's something in the message or just something you got going on in your life that you need encouragement and support for, please reach out. We believe that this is a community where you belong to God, so you belong to us. And we want to support and come around you in those uh, in those instances. So go ahead and fill out a connect card or just reach out to someone directly. But we'd love to encourage and support you. With all that being said, I hope that you have a wonderful week. I hope that you find opportunities to make it easier for people to encounter Christ uh, and to be the voice of God to somebody. So have a blessed week and we'll catch up with you real soon. See you.